Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. We're back, episode six. Yes, six. I had to look at what I wrote down. <laughs> um, you're on the road to another hunt. Yeah, one today. To, one to Oklahoma to, as just, usual. Yep. It's uh, this is my favorite hunt of the year. And uh, it, I was gonna say it's my favorite hunt yeah. of the year, um, as we talked about. You know, there's, and I say that in regards to the camps that I that I go to, and all the camps that I go to have been awesome. The people are great. But what I, what I really, really enjoy about hunting is meeting new people and making friends through that or introducing people to hunting. Like, those are my favorite aspects of it. And in this particular hunt, it's just a group of guys that met in a number of various ways over the years. We've been doing this. Uh, this is our fourth or fifth year now. We have the lease. Uh, we've worked the land a little bit. I mean, specifically Mike and my friend Dustin, they've done so much for the land because everybody else kind of lives away. But it it has a different feel than anything else because all the other hunts I feel, you know, I'm either there with a company or I'm there, uh, with a, with an outfitter like Chino. And of course through an outfitter or through a company, you want to represent well. And I, and I hate to say, I hate to say that is an added layer, um, to a hunt because for me, the hunt is not necessarily about that. It's not about the visibility of it. It's not about the promotion of, of a product, so to say, but right. It, it does happen and there are those opportunities out there in the line that I work in to connect with people and to, to go and this is just a complete exodus from all that it's it's just really really great people that found each other through archery and hunting and uh, I was fortunate enough to get invited by a guy that no longer comes so um, mm -hmm. he kind of helped himself out uh, of the door that way <laughs> but that's what you know that's what being um, that's what being good to people and, and on a level with people, no matter how they view you or how you view yourself, like we're all the same. And in this situation, there's a pro level or a, a master's pro tournament archer. Uh, he actually builds my compound bow in Michigan out of Adams Archery. His name's Jamie Drillyard. Mike and Dustin played football together in Michigan. 
where they met Jamie and they met Dan and they met Gerald. So it's kind of a Michigan connection. And uh, to tell you how it all came together and to tell you all the the inner workings of, of how we got there, I couldn't. But honestly, man, it's it's just such a good time because like I was telling you before the show, no pressures on anyone. I love hunting pigs. They like like they're more focused on the whitetail. But I've had a few whitetail hunts this year. I've had some success and I am just trying to become a better hunter. And there's just a more opportunity for reps on the pigs. And caveat, you're doing a service to the land because they just decimated out there and there's so many of them. So more of a pig hunt for me than anything. But I, I had a great time out there earlier this year chasing pigs and I've killed a lot of pigs out there over the years. So this hunt is it, is, is a truly what a hunt for me if I were to lay it out and be like, this is, this is the way I want to hunt for the rest of my life. It would be this example. The pig hunting thing is so wild to me because I mean, there's literally none of that here. Yeah. And so like you just hear about how, how literally it, I mean, they're pests. Yeah. In those parts of the country. Like, and I think, I don't think people understand like quite really what that means. And they're like, Oh, what is there just a lot of them? Like, well, no, they literally destroy everything. For example, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm very like much, they in, are like I'm, locusts to a degree. Yeah. Well, I'm in the same boat as you. Like before I saw it, I had only heard about it. I had only read things about it. And I had just seen uh, a lot of people were into hunting the pigs. Well, and you start reading about the farmers. There's one guy down there in Texas. He spends around a million to two million dollars a year just on pig extermination because of the devastation that they. Okay, so to, to kind of backtrack a little bit, we had a little audio episode there, but um, so anyway, there's. I was just like you. I literally read the stuff, saw the stuff on online. You know, people were very avid hunters of, of the pigs. They were shooting them at night. They were shooting them from helicopters. And I think you can get this kind of heavy metal perspective of just, this is a bloodbath and we're just out here to kill. I'm sure there are guys that, that do that. Like they just want to kill as many pigs for the bloodlust. Um, and, and I think that happens across all of hunting. I'm not saying it's a huge quadrant, but let's be honest. There's somebody out there that is just killing because they want to kill something. Um, so I had no idea the devastation that they actually do to the land, as well as things like telephone poles. There's a place on our lease that we, we actually lost this property this year, but it's two huge fields. And there were some electric lines or, or phone lines across it. And in this one particular area, they had created a wallow around it and they get up against it with their tusks. And they had actually like a lathe, just work this thing down like a beaver would on a tree to where to, to where eventually this utility pole is going to fall over like it, it will fall over at some point um so seeing that and then seeing i don't know what the crop was i'm assuming it might have been like alfalfa or soybean it was green and it was small but they were in there just rooting it up and i mean huge tracks hundreds of acres of this crop and you can just see these woven lines throughout it where these pigs just gotten in there and rooted around and destroyed crop so this is not a thing where it's like, okay, you know, there's 15 pigs on this farm. I can watch 15 pigs watch out, walk out of a bedding area every hour that I'm there. Um, and and that's, that's not an exaggeration. It's things that I've documented. They're not afraid. They're very, very bold. Um, they will run like if they smell you or see you, but like they're, they're pretty brazen as how they cross the road, they don't care. They get up near houses, they don't care. 
So for somebody living in New York City, pointing their finger and saying that this is a horrible thing and it's a it's abuse of wildlife or whatever, I can hear why they would say those things. But come to Oklahoma, you know, come there where I'm at, where it's not even designated as quote unquote bad yet. Um, it is just because like places farther north, like Iowa and places like that, I think, are, are where some of the worst. Some of those areas there. because of the corn. Texas is a god. It yeah. is god awful. Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, um, southern states with a lot of heavy agriculture, midwestern states with a lot of heavy agriculture. It's just a, it's just a an ongoing fight against these pigs. And furthermore, you think about these pigs, they start breeding at about six months old. And after six months old, you know, every, I don't remember the exact cycle, but I think it's like four to five months that they're having a litter. And well, I thought I, I had read a thing that said they can have up to 10 twice a year. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, have 10 it's twice a year. It's something like that. It might be six months or uh, it might be five months. But anyway, they can they can birth two litters to three litters a year uh, in that six in that six to twelve piglet range, um, and you know like there's no way to control that. It's just an exponential growth, and so anyhow that that has become my fascination and focus out there. Like I said, I'm I'm an I'm an aggressive hunter in that I want to hunt. I want to be out. Um, testing myself against an animal, testing myself against the elements, testing my skill as much as I can. And in a deer stand, you are doing those things, but you're also contained. You're also in one spot. Now, sure. like the pigs, I can generally stand. We have a couple of spots that, that we hunt in each location or each property that we have. We have uh, four now, we did have five. And um, each of them has areas, designated areas where we can hunt. We got some feeders out there. Um, so I can stand at the edge of a field, see three potential hunting spots and wherever the pigs are, I can go now in a deer stand, I can see a deer at a hundred yards, have every capability of potentially shooting that deer at some point, but I'm, I'm pinned to a tree at 20 feet in the air or 18 feet in the air yeah. or in a ground blind, you know, you're kind of stuck in there too. So. The type of hunting that we're going to be doing is diverse. Some of the guys will be a little more focused on deer, and if a pig comes through, they will shoot it. Um, some of the other guys might, I hopefully, join me in the, the spot and stalk with the pigs because it's more fun when you got more people. But it's it's just a great hunt for me because it touches all the boxes that I'm looking for as a hunter. It's got great people. We have a great camp. We got a great place to stay. We cook awesome food. Uh, we shotgun a beer every morning before we go out. Like, you know, you can, you can call that unethical or whatever, but it's literally one beer at six o'clock in the morning, you, you know, right. and then we come back and we have a good time uh, either with bourbon or beer at, at the end of the night. But just a true exodus from a lot of the stuff that I'm in and around most of the year, whether it's through TAC or through uh, Winter Strong or, you know, a lot of the industry people, this is, a, this is an exodus from all of that. And I, and I enjoy that. Well, and that kind of leads me into the next thing that I wanted to have you talk a little bit about because we alluded to it a little bit last week when we were talking with Mark, um, but we were talking a lot about Buana and all the things that he was doing, so we really didn't get into your Texas hunt yep. that you did a couple of weeks back, uh, and, you, and you posted some cool videos and stuff from it, but I kind of wanted to just hear the, like, the overall experience. I mean, it kind of came about pretty 
quickly yeah. and like unexpectedly because yeah. it was like literally one day notice and you were piecing out the next day. Yeah, that, <laughs> so, that's one of the that's one of the yeah. cool aspects of my job. You know, with with I worked with Sornex. I started on the proper side through the exercise equipment. Bert and I talked a lot about the outdoors and how that was healing for both of us, and it was something that we were able to tie ourselves to through our training because when I don't have we've talked about it when I don't have something to train for I generally don't train for anything but whether it's a tack or it's the outdoors camping or it's hunting the outdoors offer a peg on the wall that I can say that's my goal I want to be able to do that as effectively yeah. as long as I can so I met Levi Morgan at uh, at the Archery Trade Association I think it's what it's called ATA show industry insider show met Levi he was far and away one of the nicest guys one of the biggest names but one of the most down-to-earth people like when I got there we had talked a little bit on Instagram and we had some stuff to talk over so he just pulls me in a back room and we sit down and he's talking to me about his new broadhead uh, system that he's got worked out for an arrow and he's talking to me about a project that him and his wife are working on so just like a very very normal guy um, right from the jump so I wanted to help the guy in some way. I wanted to say thank you in some way for just his, his kindness. And I was like, man, can I help you with your workout? Can I give you some training? And he, he got into that for a little bit. And then his tournament archery started and that like, he's like all of us, man. He's just trying to make, make it. And, um, yeah. you know, once you, once you're in a competitive season, you're competing on the weekend, driving home for a day or two and home for a day or two and then back on the road. So his training got really discombobulated. We still have plans to do that, but nevertheless, we've stayed in touch. I went up and visited him. We got a workout in, which is great. And uh, he just has completely exceeded my expectations of him, even though I've gotten to know him more every time. So yeah. he, he sends me a message. Uh, he's like, hey, man, you still shooting your compound? And I, I have. I'm not dedicated to it, but I have. And I was like, of course. You know, I, I said, I'm wide open to anything. And I also knew that if he was asking me that, it either meant that maybe he was looking to shoot or, or it was going to be an opportunity of some sort to shoot with Levi, which I, I've done that before and I very much benefited from it as, a, as an archer, but also just enjoyed the time. So mm-hmm. about 24 hours before camp starts, he's like, can you make it to Texas or would you even want to try to get to Texas? And I was like, want to try? I said, I'll be there. So I'm like, I'm mapping it out to drive it. I'm looking at flights. I'm doing all this stuff. And, you know, of course, kind of comes together super rapidly. Didn't know who was going. Just knew that he was filming an episode for his television show, Bow Life. Um, and never been on film before. Never anything in the scope of this. But I do know that there were other guys that were coming to hunt. And that's how he pieces together an episode. You don't expect everyone to be successful. So you have two or three options that you can pull a storyline from. So get down there immediately. I met uh, by one of the camera guys, Joe Cadle, and we were on the same plane together. And Levi picks us up in this big 15 passenger van. We all load our gear up. And I knew instantly that this was going to be a good trip because it was Levi, his brother, Micah, who is an incredible uh, videographer and photographer a kid from Kentucky named Hunter Phelps that I absolutely fell in love with when I was down there. Just, it, it, he was like a brother, you know, cause we grew up same kind of way. Mm-hmm. And then I met Joe Cadle, who's done some work for Aaron and born primitive and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a tight knit group just by association. 
but we end up driving to this uh, taxidermist little taxidermist outfitter shop and the joke started happening there we ate at uh, whataburger had a great time there so i knew it was going to be a good camp and as a juxtaposition to what i've said uh, about some of the industry insiders in camp and whatnot i've only had one or two bad experiences with that i've had overwhelmingly good experiences but these guys are under a totally different type of pressure than you or i would be in a camp because one they're known they're they're probably having their trips paid for by a big name sponsor who is expecting results so i didn't know what to expect when i got there but it was absolutely amazing and the hunt that we went on was at cactus jack ranch which is in uh in salita texas i think it's about 40 minutes from laredo and right at the border crossing there um one of the most prestigious whitetail ranches in the world because they continuously produce you know world-class whitetails 200 plus inch whitetails every year and they have such a strict management system it's a low fence they do feed the population with corn uh cotton seed alfalfa they have a couple things that they grow and they also supplement feed so this place is they've never brought a gene pool in from the outside they've never done selective breeding this is like a this shows you what management at its absolute peak can do. They don't let they don't let you shoot a deer under seven and a half years old. Um, when you sit down there, they kind of talk to you about what kind of deer you like. Do you like more symmetrical? Do you like something with kickers? Do you like something with turndowns? Do you like eight or a ten or a twelve? Or are you just looking for a freak? And they have budget ranges for any individual person that wants to hunt. I think their basic hunt package. For what they consider a coal hunt which is a 140 inch plus deer that just doesn't mm -hmm. this doesn't have certain specifications that meet their standard uh, is around three thousand dollars now okay that may sound like a lot but just about every other whitetail outfitter i know in the country runs between 2500 plus you know you can go up yeah i was gonna say that seems just right in the middle of where yeah most like that's pretty average yeah. across all over the country so the twist on that is you have to there's only like seven or eight members i, I don't want to speak to that like authoritatively but it's a very small number sure. of members and then from there they get certain invites uh per, gotcha. per year so one you have to be a friend of a member get invited and then it's you can open up your checkbook as deep as you want to run um if you want gotcha. if you want to kill something like truly 200 plus uh with with some kind of record potential I mean, you might just be start thinking of 25 grand minimum. Sure. So, right. and that's the cool thing about it. Um, you will see these deer. You'll have extreme interaction with these deer. I had about 170 or 180 inch deer at three feet um, in front of my blind. Crazy. And one of the cool things about whitetail, I was talking to Andy Bokel about it. No matter how hard you hunt out west, no matter how much you are, uh, being challenged, you're still in the game because you're on foot. You can, you feel like no matter what, you're in the hunt. Whitetail is a totally different thing. It's all strategy and it's patience. And every time I see a whitetail, whether it's a fawn, a doe, or the biggest buck I've ever shot, I get that feeling of this is nature's gift to my persistence. You know, and I, I don't, I don't think people understand that. For most people, when they go out to hunt deer, they're not shooting every deer they see. I think people have a very bad misconception of what hunting is. Like they think that you go out every time and you see deer and you kill a deer. Far from the truth. I've hunted more days and more hours this year 
without seeing a deer that I hunted my entire life five years ago, you know? So it's a very hard endeavor and that creates a situation when you, when you do have that potential buck of a lifetime or just a really great buck, you, you tense up and you get that adrenaline. Well, being around these massive deer day in and day out, uh, just really presented itself in a way of like, I don't have to be so afraid of messing up like the deer are hyper perceptive but i can you know i can wipe my nose i can Hmm. open my bino harness and all of these things will will get you caught too but you can get away with it if you're careful so it's it just intimate uh distance with some of these big big deer that i had no capability of shooting no permission to shoot so when my deer comes out which is still phenomenal deer well like well desirable deer by any hunter um he just wasn't the class of deer that they let grow to forever and that's one of the coolest things too they actually don't shoot their biggest bucks there they let their biggest bucks die wild um or or die naturally in the wild so and they want that breeding pool to last as long as they can so they have as long as possible so if they have a true giant or he's starting to recede they might take him then, but they prefer to let their biggest deer die in the wild. So it's just a really cool setup. So somebody who's watching my stories and they're seeing giants in the field every time and they're saying, why aren't you shooting? Why aren't you shooting? Well, one, I have respect for the offer from Levi and Mr. Kelly, the guy that that organized the hunt. I also have uh, an extreme amount of respect for what they've done in the decades prior to me having the privilege to step on the ground. And then I was also given two deer to kind of focus on so we hunted the areas that the deer were seen and to limit this even further we had a ground blind which is somewhat limiting in its own right we were not supposed to open the middle window because we wanted as little light let in as possible so i'm shooting through literally if you turned a football vertically top to bottom and said this is your shooting lane and then the cameraman had a shooting lane and I also had to have the deer on camera when I shot. That was part of the agreement. So now you, you have one to two deer on the entire 5,000 acres that you're hunting. That particular deer has to walk into a window the size of a football with angles that go out from about 11 o'clock to 1 o'clock on a, on, in front of you. So mm-hmm. it's not like shooting fish in a barrel, which is a lot, I got a lot of those comments. It, it would yeah. it would be if it was free reign. If I could go in there with a bow and shoot anything and everything I wanted, shooting fish in a barrel. But the self-imposed discipline and limitations that they set on every hunter makes it just as exciting. So uh, early on in the hunt, we watched the video. I got a shot on a deer um, and the arrow actually, because they, they brush these blinds in so well and they use like a ghillie netting over the top. So the ghillie netting hangs down in the, the top edge of your window. I got a shot on a deer. Luckily, luckily, uh, after the deflection, got a flesh wound on a deer. He, uh, he made it through the night. He proceeded on. Just one of those freak things that can happen. I was feeling like crap. I was feeling like I'd let the, you know, let the farm down, let everybody down. And they literally told me, like, flesh wound just go on about it. He's going to be fine yeah. kind of deal. And, uh, we determined that we, we found blood very early and then the blood just evaporated. Like there was no, no blood ever. So, you know, 
no no good feeling to take away from that except that the deer was living when I left and will likely survive yeah. another day. So sure. it happens. And that, and I wanted to, you know, there's a part of me that's like cringing as I say that, but there's also the part of me that wants to be very honest to understand that as much as I've hunted, I've never ever had that happen in my life. And it happened in a moment where I was at the biggest whitetail ranch I've ever hunted and the most prestigious I will probably ever hunt. And I, and I make this mistake. Levi comes over first thing he said he watched the film because obviously if if somebody makes a bad shot your immediate is, assumption is they just screwed up in the moment made a bad shot right so, so he comes over and he's like let's watch the video and they had two frames of video because um, you have a guide that is filming everything from 200 yards away so in that way they oh, okay. and that and yeah. that gives them information on the deer uh, their deer patterns as well as if you shoot a deer it gives them feedback on the shot placement. Is this something that we go track now? Is this something that we leave for two hours? Is this something that we leave overnight? And the property has dogs on it as far as like working blood trail dogs. And then they also have a guy named Mr. Roy that comes in with his dogs that are world-class trackers. Their recovery rate is out of this world. So they control the recovery of every deer. And part of that process is watching the shot. So we watched the shot from one angle and, of course, I'm looking at it like, God, that's just a bad shot. And we look at it from the other angle. Hunter had filmed inside the blind, and we got we got camera on it. And you can actually see, I shot a lighted knock. There's a deflection, and the arrow kind of dolphins and then straightens out and hits this. Oh, you can see the actual flight change yeah, on you can in see, the video. And Levi said, man, it happens. Like, he was so, like, good in that moment because I was embarrassed. Like, I was terribly embarrassed that I'd messed this up, you know. And he was like, it happens. And he told me about his wife having a similar situation happen. He's done it uh, on a tree, mm-hmm. you know. So, again, I want to reiterate, not proud of it, not happy that it happened, but these things do happen. And um, so talk to the guys there. They're like, deer's going to make it, no problem. Don't stress out about it. Let's just get a good night's sleep, and we'll talk about it in the morning. So I get up the next morning, and they're like, hey, there's a great buck. He's a coal. Um he, he definitely does not fit our criteria of a buck that we're looking for. So that would be a great one to hunt. And like Levi, after he killed his giant, they put him on a call. You know, it's, it's just a great bonus that you have that they need the, they need these deer shot. And if you, if you kill early in your hunt, they put you on one of those deer to help them out. So he was like, look, this is, this is what would have happened if that deer died. Anyway, you're going to hunt a call. And they showed him to me and I was like, that's not a call where I'm, I'm from, and he's amazing. <laughs> so we spend two days um, chasing this deer, and no luck. And, and last minute of the third day of the hunt, because I shot on the first day, had the had the bad the bad shot, the, the flesh wound, um, and then uh, you know ended up hunting two days, and just the the reality of hunting has set in. Like it's not going to happen, is what it feels like, and fourth day or i'm sorry right at last light on the third night the deer walked to the edge of the of hunter's view i never saw him but hunter could see him and there was this other deer they have to be father son have to be because they look exactly the same except the other deer is about 20 inches bigger so every time he would come in the field i'm like that's him that's him let's go let's go (laughs) and hunter's like it's not him i promise you it's not him 
and he had one distinctive characteristic that separated him from the other deer and my deer had a turn back g2 like it grew up and then it bent back a little bit and he also had a couple of like extremely turned up front points and the other deer was more of just a general wraparound so just a cool deer um and every time i would see the the bigger one i would think it was him but it just wasn't happening so he comes in the last night and and that for me is like a good sign we're closer because he wasn't on, he wasn't on camera until an hour after dark two nights before then it was like 40 minutes before dark and then now he's 20 minutes mm -hmm. before dark but he's not coming in so i'm like he's about 20 minutes per day so tomorrow he should be here right at last light sure enough it's just like every hunting show that's ever been recorded last sit last light <laughs> you know backs against the wall but it, it, it really was that situation and we were getting sundown at 5 or 526 was sundown 507 mr tim my guide he messaged me he said i think your deer is at the edge of the at the edge of the lot well hunter swings around and kind of makes an eye look with his binoculars and he's like that's him so i'm like okay we got 20 minutes you know like what's going to happen and that was at 507 and at 510 the deer was running out of the field and mr tim said i sure hope you shot him and didn't scare him away and, and i said i absolutely <laughs> shot him and he said well you must have had your bow drawn whenever you texted me before and i was like no not necessarily but it was just one of those situations he came in perfectly had three deer around him had two does and a buck and he was head down feeding and like you know i'm watching the clock i'm holding my hand on the bow like those are the moments where the adrenaline starts to dump you know like if he walked out and i shot him in stride there's no adrenaline dump to that like because you're so focused on the, the intent but when he's standing there and you could literally shoot him but there's preventable causes there because if you hit another deer that's a problem for their property as well so right. i'm like they're not going to move they're not going to move and that starts creeping in and it starts building the tension <laughs> But I was, look, I was sitting there looking around and, and I just had that remembrance of, man, this deer, other than any other deer, is no bigger. He's no older. He's just like every deer you've been observing. So get your head back about you. If he gives you a shot, take it. If he doesn't, it wasn't meant to be. So I don't know where that came from, but it just calmed me down perfectly. A little fawn came over and pawed at one of the, or hoofed at one of the, the bigger does. And of course she scurried off and that kind of blew some of the deer out. My deer never lifted his head, never even raised his head for a second. And I saw the window of opportunity. Um, leg was kind of forward and just kind of put it near that crease. Ended up shooting about three or four inches behind his, his uh, elbow joint. And, you know, just a great shot. Saw blood immediately. Um, we had another guy shoot, and then actually Mr. Kelly, the organizer of the hunt, had made a shot, and Levi killed a colt. So we had four deer down. We were going to have to kind of disperse the troops a little bit to go chase these deer down and track them. And for several days, it was just like this light, humid, misty, foggy rain. It wasn't raining, but you were wet the whole time. So they, they felt like because of the pressure system that keeps the scent low to the ground, that we would be better off just letting every deer go overnight um, unless they were within 40 yards or 50 yards of what we could see. We tracked each one of them and it gets so thick after about 50 yards 
um, it's like it's better to get the deer because I mean better to get the dogs because if you go in after a deer and you bump it, you, you're going to lose it. So yeah, you might never see it again ever. <laughs> so we just opted to go as far as we could find blood and before the thick stuff, and every one of us backed out. So next morning, the dogs show up. Mr. Roy gets going on it, and you know I'm thinking this is going to be a slam dunk, super easy, super easy deal. We tracked the last blood, and it was very evident that the deer had stopped on this trail and coughed because there was blood on both sides. And that's pretty typical of either they're spraying blood or they cough and they throw a clot. And because typically on your exit wound um, is basically the only bleeder. And uh, this deer was, was slowing down his blood a little bit. He was trickling pretty good. And then it kind of slowed down a little bit. And then he coughed and those clots came out. And I think another clot might have clogged his exit holes. And um, there was no blood after that. So I got pretty, pretty nervous in that moment. Like, man, how good are these dogs? How much can they smell? And how much do we need that blood on the ground? We literally never found another drop of blood. And those dogs found him in one of the thickest uh, kind of canyon ditches that they have down there bedded up under some really thick stuff. And unless we had done a, tr- it's so amazing. Like when dogs are that good, dude. Well, I'll, I'll just crazy. I'll just tell you. I mean, I don't I don't remember their exact recovery rate, but it's something like high nineties, and it's because of those dogs. Um, it was I'll tell you what it it was a joy for me to I, I used to hunt pheasants and I've hunted some other birds and the bird dogs are amazing. Like I absolutely I love that part more than I do shooting the birds, but getting to watch these dogs blood track and their capability i mean joel uh he goes by whitetail fit he had shot a deer very similarly just a touch further back than mine and you know we're talking about the difference between four inches being a heart shot and a lung shot with some liver to hitting liver and guts you know you you got a four to six inch range there for all that to happen and and joel's shot was yeah joel's shot i think they ultimately determined because we were shooting those big wide swacker broadheads he got some liver got some lung and got a touch of guts so this wasn't a huge bleeder uh deer had nowhere really to go except a certain area but we searched that area and couldn't find him and mr roy didn't have blood hardly at all to go by but he was in it he was in an area and the dogs were like circling this one spot so they knew that this was at least where he had been and confident that he wasn't going to be much further. So Mr. Roy comes out and he goes, there's water over there and there's water over there. You got a sick deer. He's going to need to drink, go to the water. So sure enough, Joel and another guy broke off. Deer was laying dead 10 feet from the water. You know, like it's just, it's just those old timey, mm-hmm. like, like know how repetitions on deer. And yeah, it, anyway, it, it just went from making a, a shot that I, you know, Everything was perfect. It it looked good. Like the shot actually looked pretty good, but it just ended up being a flesh wound to feeling like I'm never going to see the deer I'm supposed to shoot. Uh, I've wasted this amazing opportunity. Uh, when you have that hanging over your head, you're a little bit more somber in camp. You don't joke around or cut up as much. And then, you know, to have a deer sit overnight, get out there and not find blood, like the worst was starting to creep in. Like the worst feelings possible were starting to creep in. And then to have it turn out well, Joel found his, Levi killed two, uh, Mr. Kelly got a great deer. Um, it, it really probably ended better than it should have. Like we all got the target deer that we were looking for. So 
it was just it was an exceptional so hunt cool. and I, and i again i want to stress to people like there's some big name hunters out there and there's a lot of people that, that talk a lot of talk and you know they throw their hands up to praise god every animal they kill and then they go to they go do lines of blow and hookers after the filming stops levi is about as quality a human as i could turn somebody on to like i've been to his house i've been around his wife i've been around his kids i've been with him in hunt camp we've trained together um and i don't want to oversell like we're best friends like we we are still i would consider him a friend but like we're just kind of in an early stage somewhat of uh of the friendship but i've gotten privy to a lot of things uh, in his life and he's the same guy everywhere you know he grew up as a stonemason uh, grew up as just a country boy hunting fishing and all that stuff so there's a lot of common ground but he's done probably as good a job as anybody i've seen in the industry that hasn't lost himself he may have over time but where he's at now he seems like a hell of a good guy one of the things i wanted to get into uh, for a minute um just because we had talked about it uh for a little while before we hit record the first time but it's really cool to hear when you have experiences with guys that are like pretty big time. I mean, like we've talked a lot about Levi in today. Sure. And I, you know, if somebody doesn't know who he is, he's, I mean, I don't even know if you could argue it. He's like the best competition archer ever. Yeah. And like on the, on the world stage. Right. I mean, yeah. like he is a pretty big deal. And so it's always cool when you have like the, the instances where that could very easily get to somebody. Yeah. And it doesn't. And I, I, like, it's always refreshing to hear that, like, we, we, you know, and even you and I specifically do it a lot where we kind of lament social media and a lot of it. But yep. there's still really refreshing points where, like, you can see instances, like, you can see conversations with Levi and you have been experiences with him. And, like, there's still, like, good things about it and good people that don't that don't fall down those traps, you know, and when they very easily could. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at a guy, um, like I said, grew up just as blue collar as it gets. His dad's a Mason. He, he was going to be a Mason. And his father really encouraged him into archery. And, you know, he's, he's made a living of that, but beyond making a living at that, he's 14 time, uh, world champion and 12 time shooter of the year and shooter of the year is based on most points scored in tournaments. Yeah. So, you know, he went on a tear and just absolutely re reimagined what precision archery could be. And, I, and this is the story I tell just to qualify him as the greatest shooter of all time. So he shoots a class that is unknown distance. They don't know how far their target is. They cannot use a range finder. And they are literally shooting at precision spots on these targets about the size of a quarter and at the biggest, maybe a baseball. And you're, you're the smaller the circle that you hit, the more points awarded. Well, he outshot with unknown range and no range finder, the known distance class <laughs> by, by a pretty, pretty good margin. And if I'm not mistaken, he's done that more than one time. I mean, it's, I don't know the number, but it's, somewhere between one and a handful of times. It's amazing. So, and, and I've gotten to shoot with him. And the craziest thing I saw him do was we were shooting with Darren Christaberry and Lonnie Marlowe, and they're both professional archers. And, you know, I'm shooting my recurve. Well, 
we're all shooting and he knew to the foot per second how fast my bow was by the sound of it by the sound of the arrow in flight and how far and any and then then he knew the distance because they have a regulation i can't remember what it is they might they might have to shoot 250 feet per second or 200 whatever it is there's a there's a range that's very limited and he knew darren and lonnie's um by listening and then he also judged the yardage based on those feet per second and how long it took to get there so he was making he was like making micro micro clicks because they can do i think um i think they can do like an eighth of a yard click on some of those or it, it, i'm pretty ignorant in that stuff but it's like you can get super super precise so he would dial it and then he would hear their arrows and then he would redial it like one or two clicks and just unbelievable smoke them. that's amazing so, that's so cool. yeah i love like just the freaky abilities that like those the people that are the the absolute best best ever best like those kind of things that they have are just the coolest things ever to me well you know he's he's using the benefit of technology but i couldn't do that with his bow you know what i mean you couldn't do that yeah. with his bow it's just or that is 20 years of shooting like there's you know there's yeah. just the things that are like he is always going to be the one that's able to you know to have that ability and that skill and that whatever it is it's like it's the whole outliers thing yeah you know well i'm glad we're like do you ever wonder about guys like that? Like, you know, of course I watched the last dance with Jordan and I've talked to Levi a little bit and his motivation now, and I don't want to speak for the guy and I don't definitely don't want to paint a bad picture of him, but his motivation now is more for hunting. Like that's what drives his, his archery. Um, and I, I don't know that he has lost the, the spark for, tournament archery i just know that he doesn't get the same feeling when he wins a tournament that he does when he takes a big deer you know so yeah i I do wonder what your thoughts are on on an athlete once they reach that point where the thing doesn't bring the satisfaction anymore like say jordan you know he had won six titles and he was you know i think you have to be competitive but like his competitiveness made it all miserable you know, so so at what point does the misery become cause to, to leave the thing that you've dedicated your life to? You know, that, I guess that could go parallel beyond athletes. It could go into relationships. It could go into jobs. It could go into anything. But it seems that athletes struggle with it the most, in my opinion. Well, I agree because the especially when they get to that level, like when you're when it's consumed. 85 to 90 percent of the time of your life you know what i mean by the time you're in your 30s or whatever like when you're talking about jordan being 36 or whatever he was when they uh after the last championship or 35 because he wasn't i mean like even considered old by then standards to be done right you know? and so because when he came back three or four years later like he had just turned 40 i mean like yeah. he could have played that entire time in between but you know the whole thing with not one to play for anybody but Phil and like getting pushed out of Chicago by uh, Jerry wanting to trade everybody and do all that kind of thing. Like it's so funny because you see it in the hyper competitive, like the hyper, hyper competitive personality types. Yeah. And um, you see it, it's interesting because right now you're seeing it with Dion. Yeah. Like having been him, been Dion for his entire life. I mean, he was like the original like he he 
30 years ago when he was playing would fit in perfectly in today's like Instagram social media culture as a player. Yeah. He was doing it 30 years ago. Like he was really kind of like the first one to make it obvious that he was building a brand around his name. Yep. You know, when he was at Florida state, like there's the story where like he strolls into his last Florida state game, like wearing the the fur coat and the top hat and the limousine. And he strolls in like into that final game. He's got a 0.0 GPA. Cause he like never yeah. went to class. And, like, <laughs> like, but he knew he's like, this is a business. I'm, this is the brand. I don't need any of this anyways, you know? Yeah. Oh, uh, it's a uh, Bobby Bowden football, baby. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but then, but then yeah. you get him. But then after that whole career, I mean, and he's got the the you know the brand of prime, right? Yep. And when he's done playing, like those guys have to do something. Like they feel like they have to do something that rewards them in the similar way that hyper competitive personality type. So like he went into the media, you know, like he was going to do the media thing for a long time and become like the NFL net who's, I think he's NFL network or whatever. And like try and do the best at that. And then he's like, no, man, I need to be back on the field and coach. Yeah. And then with all the, with Jackson state and how quick they turned around, it kind of validates. He's like, no, I'm, I can go wherever I want and pretty much do wherever, do whatever I want and be successful. Yeah. Well, and you think about a guy like that, I, I wanted to ask you a question after this point, but he is a guy. So I've seen, I've been around Dion at a, at a youth, not, young kids but like that elite uh 15 15 15 to 18 seven on seven type deal yeah guy is electric to be around like Mm -hmm. he he he's he's no bullshitter i mean the things he was saying to the kids i was i was right on the sideline maybe five six feet from him when he was coaching and i'm telling you he was great with the kids you know he he didn't curse he didn't scream he talked to them like businessmen he said if I can make you a dog on this field, he said, imagine how you're going to feel when you walk into your, your first big interview or your, you know, and he was just talking to these kids about like how you have to get your mind right. And all of these things in football happen so fast, faster than anything else that'll happen in your life. So if you can learn to not react, but be thoughtful and proactive on a football field, he was like, at the speed that this game is played, you're going to dominate life. Nothing happens or hits harder in life than football. Yeah. And just stuff like that, you know, and then I got to know his strength coach at Jackson State. And, dude, everything I heard out of him was like, this place is magic. This place is gold. Obviously, Dion understood the draw of his name on social media and the impact of telling young black men, hey, come here and play football at historically black football or historically black college. Play football here. Respect your history. Respect this university. Respect the South respect yourself, do better for yourself. And if you want to play football and you want to get your name out there, I can do that for you. Yep. So that's what John Calipari does at Kentucky basketball. He coached in the NBA. He does not, I don't think he's the best coach by a long stretch. I think he's a good player manager. And he tells those kids, I will get you to the NBA. And I, you know, that's another argument for another one year later. They come there for, they go there for yeah. a year and then they turn around and they leave. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. That's another argument as if that is that the best thing for those kids or not. Definitely not the best thing for the university, right. but he is playing a role and he is doing his job. But Dion is just like an X factor in that space. But the question I wanted to ask you, we talked about how they want to keep doing something, right? They want to keep finding their way. And I, and I don't want to liken myself to anyone at, their, at like a Michael Jordan level or a Levi level, but I was at the top of my sport. I still feel this compel, you know, this compulsion or this compelling feeling that 
I want to do something. Like I want to chase something. I want to pursue something. My question to you is, do you think that it is in a, do you think that that feeling is inescapable because not only they say, you know, the, the fundamental ch- years of a child's life are so influential on who they become. Well, what if as you're becoming, and then you do become this person or this athlete with, with characteristics, uh, how do you then shed that skin when all you've ever known is this way? You know, from the time you were a kid, your friends groups were a, a merry-go-round of, of peers that played the particular sport you were playing. Maybe as you advanced, you know, like I know that my relationships as a friend are fundamentally stunted because I'm the best friend in the world when I'm in front of your face or if you reach out to me. But I am not a good friend if I'm expected to initiate the conversation or and those are things that I've tried to change and am constantly recognizing of myself to change. But I think that comes from none of my friends overlap from sport to sport. So, yeah. And I'm also a deep dive person. Like when I was playing basketball, I was watching basketball. I was buying basketball cards. I was wearing basketball jerseys when I was playing baseball. You know, I was watching baseball, same kind of thing. So it was easy for me to segue myself out of one friend group, maybe not intentionally, but then find myself fully immersed in my other friend group because guess what? We practice together. We eat together. We play NBA live together. You know what I mean? Like all the things Mm -hmm. that we were doing at that time, um, I think it just lent itself to, okay, my friends are these people right now and this is who I'm going to invest in. When soccer rolls around, it'll be these people. When baseball rolls around, it'll be these people. When track rolls around, it'll be these people. And that probably, even against my own wishes, stunted the friend that I am to people hmm. you know so yeah do you think do you think it's even possible for a person to get away from that level like 30 years in the greatest player or the greatest athlete in your sport um, can you can you ever reprogram that desire for competitive want? I think that's what a lot of them chase when they're done. Like, is like, what's the outlet? So I don't know if it's necessarily a reprogramming, like you, because I don't, and especially as men, right? Like, I don't, th- I think that drive, and and a lot of guys are going to have a much, a much more hyper version of the competitive thing than others, right? Like, but that internal drive, if you have it, I I don't ever think that's anything you want to tame by any right. degree. Like, even if you're not doing the thing that you've done your whole life, but how do you channel that into doing something else that's going to be productive and not necessarily like maybe it doesn't reward you in the same way, but you've at least found something that you can rechannel that energy into. And maybe it's a, and, and this is like where you kind of are. And I'm the same where you, you find a thing and you get completely engulfed by that thing. Yeah. Right? And as far as the the balance between having a thing that you, cause this is where I was for a long time. I mean, I've told you before I was not like I w I was an extremely mediocre athlete in college, right? Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't going to nationals meets every year and stuff. Like I was fast. I could do a couple things pretty well, but like I, w- I was good enough to play in college and run in college, but I wasn't like the best that, or even in the top, maybe like 20%, right? I was, competitive at some meets i won a couple races like that kind of thing um but so so for me i always realized that all of this stuff is just a thing that i do not like 
who I am. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think because I had that, you know, kind of early on, cause I knew I was like, I'm good, but I'm not like great where this is going to be my life. Like there was a, the, and we talked about this, like in one of the earlier episodes, like there was a moment where I'm like, this is the date of my last track meet. There's nothing after this. Like, so there's no like reason for me to yeah. get really upset and think, Oh, what could have been like, I've done everything I could for like 12 years that I've been running, running and playing sports now since I was 10 years old or whatever. And like, yeah. I mean, that's sad because it's a whole chapter that's closing, but I find there's these things that you can go into and I look at them as skills to learn, not necessarily like personality traits that I'm trying to adopt yeah. into myself where it's like affecting how I have other relationships. Do you know what I mean? Well, I do. And I think that is something that society is somewhat impressed upon men and I am no men's expert. I barely can get through a day myself, but like I make a lot of observations of people and I've, I've read a lot. And one of the things that I think that men do is they take ownership roles of the the jobs we have or the sports we play or the interests we have, we define ourselves instead of saying like, I play guitar, I'm a guitar player. Um, you know, right. or I'm a, you know, I, I like to go to the gym and bodybuild. No, I'm a bodybuilder. So we self proclaim these right. titles that almost weave themselves into our belief of who we are, you know? And I think for some, uh, I think, for many, that is a benefit to have an identity to to hold you together a little bit when when life is just not going great. I think those things can pull you through. But I also feel that it is also the ledge that men find themselves on more often than not. Uh, do you know that after 9-11, the number one highest rate of suicide was amongst uh, white-collar male individuals mm. like earning $150,000 or more a year, um, wow. very financially set, but their job, their potential for growth. And even this even happened again in 08. So when there's huge cataclysms in society, right. it is typically white collar white men that somewhere along the lines internally feel that pressure of status or title and they're not going to be that thing anymore. They're not going to have this cash flow like they had before. So they right. turned to suit. They turned to suicide. Well, that got me looking at several different planes. Why do these guys come home from combat and have the highest rate of, of suicide? Well, to me, I think it, it goes into what uh, Sebastian Younger discussed in Tribe. You get these individuals that literally know who they can trust and who they cannot trust in the highest forms of stress. Like this guy's gonna bitch out. This guy's gonna come over my shoulder, guns blazing. Like you start to know these things and you start to look at the world differently because you don't know that. I don't know that, but they do. They know that level at a level that you and I can never understand um, to the point where when they don't have that and then they're not that person themselves, there's no one there depending on them to come over their shoulder, guns blazing how do they get that satisfaction of life? How do they get recognized with the thank you for your service, $15 an hour at Home Depot job? How do they get that satisfaction of service at any level ever close to that? And that's what Sebastian Younger discussed in Tribe heavily was why these men suffer, why they struggle. And I, I don't think it is just veterans. I think it is men at large 
who are seeking to become this identity that somewhere in society we're told we have to become. We, we get some semblance of taste of that. Life changes, life happens, kids happen, marriages happen, divorce happen, whatever it is, throws you off course of that thing. And I think men struggle to re-identify once they kind of stamped their branded themselves as this thing. There's a, I mean, we can take this in a very like, and this is obviously where I come from a lot, but if we make it a, like a faith type of conversation, right? There's a lot of what I think is lack of, and not even just long-term, right? But where I'm from, it's like, when do I say where I'm from? Like where, where my, where my thought is, it's like, I'm talking eternal. Yeah. Right there in the, the lack of that as sort of a, a purpose, right? There's always something that can be, if it's earthly, it can always be taken away or it can always disappear. Right. right? And so that, that you're kind of like always anxious about this thing leaving you at some point, whatever yeah. it is, you know? And that's kind of like, well, why, why, how do we get that? And like, the whole purpose of not the purpose, but like when you have an, like a thousand year plan, right. Or eternal plan. That's a thousand times, a thousand times, a thousand, right. Yeah. There's a little bit of ease set into that where the, the anxiety of whatever it is that you're doing, if it goes away, Hey, that's cool. This was just a phase, right. Yeah. I'm still on the path long-term. And so, I mean, you, you see that a lot, um, with guys that come out of like those situations. And actually I talked with, um, Dan McKim had a really good like analogy of this when he was doing Highland game stuff. Um, because he's very strong in his faith as well. And when he was like, uh, cause I asked him like, dude, you were like literally best in the world at something for several years having this conversation. Like when you come out of it, what's that like? He's like, dude, I was, I was okay. Like, he's like, I know, like I was, this was just a thing I did for a time in my life and I was good at it. But that wasn't what I was, that wasn't who I was. He's like, who I was, was a Christian in my faith. And I know that that yeah. was going to carry me till the minute that I, like my very last breath on earth. Yeah. You know? So not to say that, you know, everybody's going to make that transition, but I think even on a, in a practical sense, the lack of super long-term thinking yeah. creates a, a bit of anxiety about, whatever it is that you're doing, if it disappears, well, now what? Like I, I'm in the dark with nothing. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, I would credit again, just to continue the Levi worship. You know, he's very, he's very faith driven in his life. Um, yeah. and I have never heard that man identify himself as a hunter or, or a archer. He's like, well, you know, I'm a husband and a father and son of God, like pretty much standard, you know, his reply. And, uh, I admire guys that really have the capability to balance and I'm, I'm sure he doesn't feel balanced. I'm sure he doesn't. Right. I'm sure that, you know, his wife and kids would love him home more. Uh, I'm sure he would love to be home more, but you know, he is, he is doing a much better job that I have observed in many people and a far better job than I could ever do myself. That has been the hardest thing for me. And I actually heard, uh, Jordan Peterson kind of cracking into this topic a little bit. This woman said that there is no God, there is no this. And Jordan Peterson said, well, everybody has some semblance of a God that they serve. Whether that is your food and you're obese, you're serving that God. If you have a sex or a porn addiction, you will go out of your way 
to get sex and watch porn. If you have, uh, you know, a drug addiction, you will go out of your way to get these things. He was like, and if you serve God, you will go out of your way to make time to pray, to do the, to do the acts of service, so on and so forth. He paralleled that quite a bit. But I think if you, you know, I kind of put that on my own shoulders. I think at times in my life, I wore the crown of God in my own life. I was completely self-serving. I was self-serving to a detriment of the people around me, to myself, you know, and I think that for me, uh, and, and not again, not to just casually talk about things that are very, ser- very serious and should be taken very seriously, but psychedelics were a bridge for me to really reevaluate myself and to reexamine that order uh, which is actually just an order of chaos, not order in chaos. And uh, I think, I don't know that this is right, and I, and I think it's too arrogant of a statement for me to, to say this boldly, but I think more men might find success if they started looking at who they're serving, what ideas they're serving, and the actions that they're taking in those services. Now, like Levi, I think if he lost the ability to shoot a bow, he's still going to have the knowledge that he is a father, he is a, a husband, and he has those things to fall back on. Whereas I, myself, was the type of person who thought, okay, I've only got this limited opportunity to pursue this thing, and that became a detriment to everything else around it. When really, how many, how many times do you get to raise your child? Not very, not very many. It's one. And most of the time it's scattered at that. And because of my pursuits, I scattered that endeavor even more. So because your, your wisdom supersedes your years on earth, how do you think that you have come to that striking balance for yourself? I mean, I, I look at you and the conversations that we have, and I have a great respect for the way that you are living your life. Do you strictly accord that to your faith in God, or is it more than that? You know, well, at the base of it, it's that, right? I mean, that's like the foundation for it. And I don't want to, man, there's so many things that have been cyclical in the, even the word balance in the last, like, even since, you know, Molly and I've been married, which has been seven and a half, seven and a half years. But even in that time, like, there's been all kinds of, cyclical things where balance really doesn't i mean that's just such a weird word yeah like you know what i mean because it's there's it doesn't mean that you give like you're you're taking down percentages of your output and distributing everything evenly like that i don't ever really think that is like balance right but it's how it's more like harmony how do you do all of these things so they they're working cohesively together and it's not always just time commitment. Like, that's the other thing, too. Like, it's people are like, well, if I got to be balanced, that means I need to be like, if I'm if I'm six and a half hours at work every day, then that means I need exactly six and a half hours of family time every day. And I've got to have six and a half hours of personal time. You know, like there's it's not that black and white. Right. It doesn't yeah. equate to just being a time thing. But if the system like of the of our household anyways is is harmonious with what we're trying to do as a family, like we understand, like there's times where I've got work calls that happen in the evenings, a couple nights a week. And that's sometimes during dinner, but I also get to be home 
in the early afternoon with my four month old daughter when Molly's at school. And so right. I mean, like there's these things that were, it's, it's not just a direct trade off, but the idea that to bring it back into, into your question around the faith part of it, one of the big things that's really changed in the last like couple of years specifically for me has been this idea of the, like I mentioned, the really long term planning of stuff and building something like for my grandkids and my grandkids kids yeah like things that like parts of my like sections of my family in a hundred years or so that are not even ever going to remember or maybe remember but not know who i was right you know and and doing things that set that up generationally and it's not even just about wealth either like that's not even what that conversation is always about but it's more family structure and establishing like heal your name essentially right like yeah, it's yeah. kind of a cool thing that i think about where i'm like i have a three-year-old and a four-month-old and who knows if there's going to be more after that but i'm like they're gonna have kids their kids are gonna have kids like how cool would it be if there's stories that can be told like what we used to do in culture for all of human history basically until what yeah. seems like recently when we sort of shame the past how it's been yeah. in the last couple you know last decade or so yeah. that look that outlook of how do i plan for what what my town or what my house and what my could look like 200 years like that actually is kind of exciting to me and there's the uh there's the saying that i butchered because i think i said it on the podcast last week with arthur but the like the story of the man who plants a tree who he knows he's never going to sit in the shade of you know like that's the yeah that's kind of the positive and, and it's a very optimistic way to look at things, right? Like you can do this yeah. and be super optimistic about uh, doing things now because, hey, this is going to be awesome in 200 years for people that are going to see it that I won't. And that's exciting, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of like a super roundabout way to do it. But like the last couple of years, that was really something that struck me and actually changed behavior patterns that in the previous years, like I didn't, I was very like, trying to build this business up what do i need to do to get this to this point in the next three months and six months and those goals are like still important just for measuring growth right but like the this podcast is one thing like coaching is one thing but family stuff like we talked about is like it, eternal you know yeah you know? and doing yeah. that for a purpose for for a long time like that was really helpful for me to hone in on deciding what is really important and how i build stuff well, you know, it's funny about this conversation, especially the way you framed it, you know, the, the Hillier name. Uh, I have Lily tattooed across my stomach, huge, mm -hmm. like very, very bold letters. And, mm -hmm. you know, as covered as I am, I always see my tattoos, but I don't actually see them. And last night I was in the shower and I'd actually looked at that for a while while I was in the shower to the point that the water went cold. Like it was one of those I think I just went down a train of thoughts and stopped thinking about what I was doing. But I was thinking about the time that I got that tattoo. I had never felt more detached from my family at all. Mm. And um, that was kind of like, I think in some ways it was a declaration that I was going to rebrand what the, what the name meant. Yeah. Um, and then also I think to myself, it was like desperate for inclusion to that family element that I did not feel at that time. So, and then the, the afterthought of that was 
what is, what does my name actually mean? You know, if I look back on my life, what are the stories that will be told? And sad reality is most people, very few people, if any, know my stories, mm-hmm. you know, because of the way I've lived my life and the distance I've put between people and things at times in my life. Like I've never really had someone to, to share those stories with. My kid probably shouldn't have been privy to some of the stories he did know like about about my past and things. But, uh, you know, it's it's a hard thing for me now at 40 years old to be looking at, you know, like you said, the body of work and the continuation of that work. Like I have a son. Hopefully, you know, that that means I'll have grandkids one day. But it's like all the things that I missed or took for granted or thought, you know, I'll be able to get this done at another time or. I'll be able to, whatever, like the, the people that will carry my name or speak my name after I'm gone, I'm not always certain have as high of opinion of me as people who might see me through a screen, you know, and that was a very, very sombering reality of that. That is, that is the devil that I, I dance with quite a bit is like, how do I rectify all the aspects of my life that I want to, well, you can't, uh, how do I invest more in people that I've distanced myself from? Well, that's going to be a little bit of humble pie. You gotta, yeah. you gotta do that. And then also it's like, how do you continue to quote unquote, make it in a society that is faster and faster and faster and consumes you more and more and more by saying, I want less of this. I will utilize less of this in an effort to, to, more satisfy the people and the, the things that I want to do. I mean, it's again, like I said, I, uh, I have no, no way, shape or form a men like a, a understander of all men. I'm just telling you from my life, these are things that I struggle with even now. Like what is my kid going to say about me when I'm older? What are the things that he will pass down to his grandkids, to his kids, my grandkids about who I am and the things that I've done and whatnot. And it's like, man, I've done some really, really incredible things. He's been a part of some of those things, but how many more things could he and I have done together if I had traded two or three of the things that I, you know what I mean? It's like those things, those types of things are, are happening now. Um, and I hope it's, it's generally for an awareness point, not more so of like a, you know, beating myself down as far as the person I've been, because that's all we can do is change what we've done, you know? And, um, I don't know how we got on that topic, but I think it's just, uh, I think it's a real conversation to have of what your name means, what your legacy means and how you live your life so that you have a legacy to leave. Um, that's, that's what I'm still trying to figure out at 40 years old. So I'm saying, I'm, I'm not, there's, there's, I, you know, whatever I set aside, like that doesn't mean I've got it down because I don't. Oh, shut up, that's Ross. Just the, that's you're, just you're, the motivation you're, for it. You're years ahead of me, son. You're years <laughs> ahead of me. <laughs> yeah, no, but uh, I, I think it's important for, it's important for me to have those revelations about, about my own life. And I don't know that if I was, I, I guess I just don't know who, how I got to the places I got in my head at times in my life of who I thought I was, you know? Well, the cool thing is too, I mean, like if you think of, to kind of begin to, to close this, the, you know, you're for you specifically, you always say you would, the goal was 75, you know? Yeah. And, uh, like that's 
from right now, that's 35 years. And if we take that as the minimum, that's almost double the amount of time that you've been on this earth anyways. You know, like that's a freaking boatload of time still when you think about all the things that have happened in 40 years already. Like, and I think about that too. Like, you know, I'm, I'm 30. And so if I, you know, make it to 80, like make it to 90, like that's three lifetimes of mine right yeah. now, which is just nuts to think about. Like, you know, we say, we say like time flies and whatever, but like you think about literally my entire life has happened in 30 years and how much time has passed. And then you're like, I have, I could do two more full times of those. Yeah. And, and in all of this and that, I mean, that's kind of where the real optimistic part of it comes through for me. It's like, yeah, time is fleeting and all this stuff. Yes. Cause it does. And it flies and that all those cliches are true. But like, when you think about how, like, if you did like the, we, we do this exercise with the goal setting thing that we, our guys do, we call it like the 10 year rewind. Yeah. Like on the date that you do it on that date, try to remember 10 years ago, exactly on that date. So if it's, you know, December 14th, like December 14th of 2012, like what was, what were you doing on that day? Like, where were you, where were you living? Like, who were you with? And like, you think even just 10 years ago, how drastically different everything in your life was at that point and all that changed in 10 years like yeah. that's super that's super motivating to be like i i could literally be a completely different place in person in 10 years from now oh certainly know? yeah i mean i think that is that is my overwhelming default is relentless positivity you know like i don't always have the answer i don't always know the direction but I will keep putting one foot forward. And, uh, and sometimes that means two steps backwards. But I, I think that overwhelmingly that has been the one trend in my life is whatever, whatever life has thrown at me, I found a way through it, you know, and that is, you know, I look at my life and it's easy, like, you know, we, we talk about the things that we want to accomplish and the things we want to achieve it's very easy to fall in that, that repetitive humdrum of, you know, man, I'm not where I should be, or I'm not where I want to be, or this and that and the other. But I go back to that point that I made maybe in the first or second episode or every episode we've done, I don't know. But the fact that the things that I have ever truly put my mind to, I've accomplished. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes I just need to figure out how to think about the right things <laughs> that I want right. to, you know, like <laughs> and, and that it, in the direction. But it also begs to differ or begs the question of like, do I really want those things if I'm having to will myself to to believe in them? So that's some stuff that I've been journaling about a little bit lately is like, what is the reduction sauce of the life that I want? You know, like, don't don't hang the drapes before the foundation's poured. You know what I mean? That's that's kind of where I'm at with this part of my life, because there's a lot of changes happening in my life. There's a lot of things that are evolving and, and expanding. So it is a really good time for me to capitalize on those moments, but also don't take any missteps in the process or avoid as many as I can, you know? Yeah, I was just going to say, and if you do, like, they happen, you know? Yeah, like, for sure. Just do the next thing the next time. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Do the next thing the next time. <laughs> That's a shirt. <laughs> it's a shirt. <laughs> uh, cool, man. Well, let's wrap it up there. I think that was a, we got into some cool spots there. We've got, um, yeah, man, that one, that one kind of flew by. I'm glad it went to the direction that it did. So yeah, uh, we've got, I mean, next week we'll be back. We got no plans to really stop anytime soon. So 
No, it's good. It's a, it's basically a therapy. It's basically a therapy session for me. So I appreciate your <laughs> same. <service. laughs> same dude. Uh, all right. Well, we'll catch you guys next week. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys.